And so I learned while researching this track that Black Sabbath's 1970 heavy metal anthem, Paranoid, could have been written about President Richard Nixon. The opening lyrics about finished with my woman could refer to the glacial coldness he displayed toward his wife, Pat. People think I'm insane because I am frowning all the time encapsulates his public image perfectly. All day long, I think of things, but nothing seems to satisfy could allude to the hours he spent plotting revenge against his enemies, real and imaginary. And the closing couplet of, I tell you to enjoy life, I wish I could, but it's too late, is a nice summary of his resignation speech. In short, Mr. Spears, a rap version of Paranoid with additional lyrics about Richard Nixon is the perfect opportunity for a collaboration between a historian like me and a pioneer of presidential hip hop like yourself. Not to mention a possible genre busting crossover smash, not unlike the Run DMC Aerosmith version of Walk This Way in the mid 1980s. I preferred the follow up. If I could walk that way, I wouldn't need the talcum powder. I'm not familiar with that one. Before you agree to record a single with me, do you have any questions? Yeah. Can I hear your flow? Why, certainly. Um, I need someone to show me the way to screw my enemies. They will crucify me just like Jesus in Gethsemane. Dr. Nair, I love you. Platonically, I assume? Why must we label everything? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 37, Richard Nixon. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents The Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. I find it particularly symbolic, I suppose, that the day we happen to be recording our Richard Nixon talk back, October 20th is the anniversary of the Saturday Night Massacre. Bum, bum, bum. The night Richard Nixon fired off his Archibald Cox. No, well, I mean, no, he made Robert. He made Robert Bork do it, or yeah, Robert, Robert Bork was the one that decided. Well, he, he was the one that finally said yes because everybody else kept quitting. So, I Paul, mean, is this when 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 Dick borked his cocks? Ooh. <laughs> hey, we have made. I want that on a shirt. That's so, it for our episode, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. I want that on a shirt. Why don't we introduce ourselves, Joe? Good Joe. idea. Hi, I'm Joe. Segway. <laughs> hi, I'm Paul. Sylvia. Oh, hi, this is Sandy. Okay. And I'm Pat. <laughs>
trick. You sure are. Okay. The thing I was going to start with, with the whole, like, the, like that the Serenade Massacre was finally the beginning of an, the end of a character who, man, the dude was around in a major way for a long damn time, really kind of hated by virtually everybody, most of all himself, it sure seems like. And yet, he, you know, another example of failing up, failing up, failing up. Hey, Patrick, what was the percentage of the Electoral College vote in 72 for Nixon? Oh, the 72, uh, it, uh, it was 96.65%. We can edit oh. that in wherever the hell it goes, which, uh, which makes the 72 election the fourth, uh, most, uh, fourth greatest share of the Electoral College uh, that any president got except George Washington, because that was both of those were unanimous so those don't count is that good it, it's pretty good okay he I was mean, no james sure monroe could... but he was good all right it, let me see yeah gosh definitely not an era of good feelings <laughs> it's good like feeling. the opposite the era of kind of creepy feeling uh. Well, let's sift through the wreckage of his career then, shall we? <laughs> Actually, let's not. Let's just go to bed. Well, you let's say wreckage, but there were, there were people who really thought, hey, you know, Nixon's been away for a while. People have pretty much, their sentiment has calmed down. So let's bring Richard Nixon back and make him Nixon's at, the one. at least an elder statesman. The whole thing is Nixon. He's tan, rested, and ready. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about 68? Uh, no. Um, I want to say 90s. Oh, yes. His older statesman era. Yes. No, I'm, with you, I'm with you, Chelsea, but there were people literally who were, hey, Nixon, I mean, so we, they, they usually give it a little shrug, like, what's the worst thing he did? <laughs> well, Ann Coulter I mean, is a like, big Nixon apologist. And comparatively, before. right? Like, to, uh, compared to like now? Before, yeah, I feel like before 2016. Like, <laughs> well, the great thing what did about, we have to compare Nixon to? Now? The great thing about Nixon in the in the annals of bad presidents is he was so odious personally, and the Watergate scandal was so shady and ridiculous that it overshadowed all of the terrible things he did policy wise as president. So it's easy to forget that he was also bad at the job let's go back to eureka california or wherever the hell you know let let's lay let's lay out the timeline shall we his first words were i am not a baby <laughs> richard milhouse nixon was born in january 9th 1913 in yorba linda california son of a grocer Son of, sure, a grocer, son, of a, son of a Quaker and a Methodist. And whose middle name was Millhouse. No wonder he was resentful. But not spelled with an E at the end, which I've always thought was weird. <laughs> Wasn't that his mother's family name? Probably. That's how mm. most really weird, weird uh, middle names come, middle names come from. <laughs> weird middle names. So hey, somebody, so I feel somebody sorry that for was... anyone who has the name Millhouse who's listening so, so... to this, we think it's a great name. 
Mm-hmm. Well, well that's the only parallel between him and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The mother's maiden name is middle name. Even though they didn't have money. And that did shape uh, a lot of Nixon's resentments and perspective. Mm-hmm. Always a fighter, our little dick. Oh, yeah. Uh, under, undersized when he was in high school, but still was on the football team. Was probably got that. creamed repeatedly, but. Did he go to college? Well, well, he was on the, on the bench a lot. I don't know that he got a huge <laughs> amount of play time. Mm-hmm. I am not a backup. so he graduated did he graduate college before or after his military service before because he he even had his law degree by the time he joined the army he he should have gone to the ivy league but the quote unquote jews kept him out so he ended up going to duke which is still a good school i mean he he did uh, i mean yeah duke's fine It, it is uh you know it's where he uh, met Pat in a th- in the community, community theater, theater. God, how I wish there was film of that. That would <laughs> that would be so good. Oh my God! I am not a supporting actor. I should be the star. <laughs> but he had to convince Pat to uh, go out with him. No, okay. really? Yeah. Um, there's there's a story that um, she was seeing someone else. And Nixon even offered to chauffeur Pat and her date and eventually wore her down. So he had a primitive tape recorder in the front seat and he was looking for incriminating information. I mean, according to- I am not making a pass at you, Pat. (laughs) According to his own autobiography, uh, it was love at first sight for him for him pat took some con- pat took some convincing so are you saying that he was the original cuck <laughs> or simp Just good old cuck nixon that's what <laughs> we are not having a threesome i am not a cuck yeah. <laughs> simp nixon uh, and by be, the way um, you open the door really i'm going to be doing that all this entire damn episode and honestly oh, god he would have done and been whatever pat told him to he just loved her so much. Sweetheart, I want you and to know be they... a corrupt, lying, commie bashing, double so dealing had... prick. Probably persistence. <laughs> They're both kindred spirits and uh, being and feeling that they were slighted in life because as poor as Nixon was, she was even poorer. So two cold, bitter people find each other on stage. Oh. It's Except perfect. one was made bitter by the person who was being who was doing the wooing. <laughs> no, Pat was already bitter. I, I've oh always my, got that sense uh, as well. Yeah, po- poverty <laughs> does not make you a better person for the Nixons. <laughs> it's a little unclear exactly whether he had political aspirations before the war, but after the war, he moved back to Southern California. The Republicans in his district were looking to have to find someone to run against a New Deal, hardcore New Deal Democrat named Jerry Voorhees, you know, five terms, anti-communist, and from uh, what Gary Wills, there's a, there's a historian whose name we have not yet mentioned, but is very prominent in this era. Um, Nixon won that very first election by uh, running what, Gary Wills referred to as 
the denigrative method or what we call negative campaigning. A pioneer in modern negative campaigning from his first campaign forward. My, are we shocked? Because what else is he going to talk about? Yeah, I was about to say, I was going to be, I would have been shocked if he was, you know, professional and above the fray. Well, and what record is he going to run on? Aside from the war hero. Right. He could run on his record as a lawyer who didn't want to take divorce cases because talking about sex with women was icky. So we get Mike Pence from Nixon too, huh? (laughs) Okay, you want to know? So, Voorhees was a, you know, had had, uh, labor support except in 1946, the CIO wanted to support him, but there were rumors that the CIO supported communists. So Voorhees put out an ad that said, I will not, I will not accept their endorsement unless the CIO staunchly and clearly opposes, denounces anti-communism. And what did Nixon do? He said, yeah, they, they endorsed you anyway, which was a lie, but it was enough. But like, oh, oh, my stars, the CIO might have communist leanings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Isn't that what the C stands for? Anyway, (laughs) how soon after he got to Congress did he get on? How did he score? The HUAC, I'm imagining, was a prize committee assignment uh, in those early days of the World War. And he was on it pretty damn fast because that's how he he started it. He was was on by February. I only know this because he was on the committee by the time that Gerhard Eisler testified. Against Alger Hiss? Yes. Yep. That was how he built his national reputation by going after Alger Hiss. Mm -hmm. Yep. So lining him right up for the Senate. Apparently it was so effective that in 48, Nixon was also endorsed in that district by the Democrats. He won with something like 80% of the vote in a district that two years before had been represented by a New Deal Democrat, mm-hmm. Mr. Mm-hmm. Voorhees. He wins in 46, gets reelected in 48, runs for the Senate in 1950 against a woman, uh, Helen Gahagan Douglas. Former movie Again, star. using anti-Semitism. <laughs> and communism. And that's where Tricky Dick first yeah. emerged as a nickname but he won pink right down to her underwear yep so within I, six years he goes from just some guy just a guy in the navy to the senate yeah so it seems he if he didn't have ambitions he at least knew how to create ambitions he grew into it yeah. Okay, his anti-communist bona fides are established. Uh, the Democrats are, pre- are pretty much doomed in 1952. The general, with no poli- previous political experience and uh, inclination to look nonpartisan and above the fray, needs to establish his anti-communist bona fides during the McCarthy era. Hmm, what do you think he's going to look at for vice president? The young up-and-comer from California. Mm-hmm. Give me your ickiest person. 
Does Nixon have any congressional allies or even friends at this point? I mean, he has to have some because he keeps like getting suggested for stuff. <laughs> Maybe people just don't want to work with him anymore. And so they just invest <laughs> him for other jobs. Uh, election sort of by like, be- uh, like Johnson. By Let's so get always. him out of the Senate. <laughs> or, or, like Ted, or like Teddy Roosevelt. Get him the hell out of the naval department and give him something where we won't have to hear from him for eight years. And just like that, that was a bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back then, there was actually uh, really two factions of the Republican Party. There wasn't a literal liberal faction of the Republican Party. It was an actual liberalism personified by Rockefeller. And then there was the conservative personified by Goldwater. And Eisenhower was considered too liberal for most of the conservative Republicans. Democrats so, would have taken him in a heartbeat. Yeah. So well, they, they were had, fighting over who would get him. Right. Oh, yeah. So they had to appease the conservatives by picking someone like Nixon, who was more in the conservative camp. But even Nixon was considered a little too liberal for some of the like the super conservative. For the birch, for the proto-birchers. Right. The other uh, theory about uh, Nixon as Eisenhower's vice president. Well, that I heard. Well, one, they did not. Well, Nixon. No, Ike did not like him because, no. granted, no one liked him. But he introduced <laughs> himself by say by walking into the uh, Ike's hotel room and saying, "Oh, chief, or great work, chief," which Ike didn't like that breach of protocol. And since Ike was a bridge builder, was a was a, he was the can't we all just get along type. And Nixon had built his reputation as an attack dog. Well, it allows allows Eisenhower to kind of float above politics and and the political fray. And really, yeah, Nixon does his job as the negative campaigner, as Tricky did. Well, his campaign, he almost lost the vice presidential campaign with that whole, that culminated in the checker speech. I mean, he was this close to ending his political career and well, it was the, the one speech and uh, that when he gave it and, and Eisenhower would not back him up Eisenhower would not commit uh, even if he said if the speech goes well he wouldn't commit to supporting him Eisenhower just wanted to keep clear because of this scandal around and just around- to clarify the scandal was essentially a, a sl- was a slush fund well right. not lack even of a, a better slush- word not even a slush fund, really. It was a pack. Yeah, okay. this is actually, yeah, like, before the pack. Like, he, he just had a, a political fund to fund his campaign. And that was enough of a scandal in 1952. Right. And he went on and gave what is famously known. He, he's, it was called at the time the fund speech, but it became known as the checkers speech. Yep. And uh, he gave it, and it was overwhelmingly positive. And even Telegram, then, he still he sent telegrams to Ike saying, "Keep him." Yeah, yeah so, even then. So, but if he had not done that speech, I'm thinking that might have been the end of Richard Nixon. Talk about counterfactual, Chelsea. If he blew that, was having a, a fund set aside for your own political campaign a no-no? It was not. Or was illegal. it just illegal? Ungentlemanly. Yeah, it wasn't illegal, but it exposes Nixon to a potential conflict of interest right right? yeah yes exactly uh who's raising the money who is he beholden to right yes i wonder if checkers was upset that he got used 
<laughs> oh yeah checkers is like leave me out of it yesterday at this time the vice presidential candidate for the republican party richard nixon defended himself against charges of accepting political payoffs here on this network we believe that it is a matter of public interest and fairness that all sides be given an opportunity to express their opinions on matters of national importance and in that spirit, we are granting a request for a rebuttal to Mr. Nixon's speech. Here with that rebuttal is one of the central figures of Mr. Nixon's speech, his cocker spaniel puppy, Checkers. Go ahead. Thank you, sir. Uh, my name is Checkers, and I... Yeah, who's a good boy? Oh, oh am I a good boy? Am You're a good boy? the boy. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Oh, but, but I have an important statement I have to make to America. My apologies. You may continue, Checkers. Oh, thank you. And good evening, America. I am Checkers, the dog that Mr. Nixon talked about without my permission last night. Oh, it is my duty. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but permission is just so adorable. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Oh, but please, I have to. Uh, yes, of course. There are millions of people waiting for you to speak. Speak? Oh, Checkers, how could you? I, I'm sorry, I got excited. I think you need to let me finish making my statement to America about my so-called master, Richard Nixon. Please. Oh, I can't stay mad at you with that cute face. I need to find a mop anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, don't let my crazy master fool you into thinking he's some humble guy who did no wrong. No, he's not. I was purchased for the entertainment of his daughter, Trish. Uh, and I admit, she is cute, gives me lots of treats and snuggles, and that makes me very happy. But when she leaves, oh, her dad, Richard Nixon, is crazy. He, he, he wanders around the house and talks to himself about rich people showing off how much better they are than he is and, and says he's going to show them how wrong they are once he wins. Oh, he's always angry. He's even tried to kick me. Kick me. How can anyone kick a dog? Especially one as cute and adorable as me. Richard Nixon should never be anywhere near any kind of power in Washington, D.C. No telling what kind of insanity and shame he will bring to the country. Or right, not only that, let's talk about the money. All cleaned up and looky looky. <laughs> oh, 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 you bastard. Oh, okay. you go get the ball. Oh. This has been an alternative point of view of Richard Nixon's speech by Checkers the Cocker Spaniel. We now resume our regularly scheduled program. At... Throw it again! Who's a good doggy? You are! The bottom line is it worked and Nixon became vice president. And as we look at his timeline, what does Ike do? Ships him out of the country for two- Oh, I was gonna say have a heart attack, but okay. <laughs> well, that comes later. But first he ships him out of the country in 1953, two months through Asia and the Middle East with Pat. On, on what might be the most inaccurately named goodwill tour ever. <laughs> he did several of those and none of them worked. But, but he made them work. He made them work. 
You you mean Nixon didn't stop the Vietnam War? Finally, Nixon enough. had goodwill in 1953. When yeah, was I was the, going to say was... that's not, if you want to spread goodwill to your neighbors, that's not who you send. <laughs> send a uh, cake. In 59, I believe it was 58 or 59. Uh, just you know, typical dickishness. Eisenhower sent him on a. I'm going to do the finger flexions, audience. Goodwill tour to South America. And two foreign leaders refused to speak to him from yes. Brazil and Chile. He posed with uh, Strasser, the military dictator and Wait Nazi apologist one. in Paraguay. My favorite part? What? My favorite part of the tour. Oh, where his Venezuela? Limo was attacked. His yep. limo was attacked by mm-hmm. um, a mob. Yeah. A violent communist mob, according to the Nixon Center. Violent communist mob. So he destabilized the government of Peru just by appearing with the president. Things went well in Colombia, strangely enough, because he was able to negotiate better co- a better coffee deal. They should have just sent him to Colombia in the first place. And then he goes to Venezuela, who had just overthrown a despot who had been given shelter by ICE. So, yeah, they were really loving him in Venezuela. And they spat on him in path. They threw rocks at the limo. One of the rocks hit Rosemary Woods, the world's, <laughs> the world's most loyal employee, it has to be said. <laughs> she took a rock for him. He did. That and was what's 50, awful it's to me. What's I think the worst part about this, like the Nixons getting uh, spat on and attacked by this mob. Is it actually plays in Nixon's favor? Everyone's yes, like, exactly. oh my gosh, he's so courageous against well, the communists. Well, not only that, so that's 50, 58, by the yeah. way, and the first trip was in the 53. And Chelsea, you mentioned the heart, the heart attack. attack. That was fall of 55. Damn. And Nixon was the acting president at that point while Ike was recuperating. It became an issue in 56, like, are we actually voting for Nixon? Yep. Uh, it it didn't work again. Uh, but there's he, no twenty fifth amendment at this point. No, so he gets. I mean, again, maybe bad stuff's happening. But what people are hearing was, oh, he went on this tour in the Middle East. It went good for him. Oh, he was a loyal vice president when Ike was sick. Oh, look at what they endured in in Central America. It's and we've got one more. 59. Oh, the kitchen debate. The kitchen debate with Nikita Khrushchev. Yeah. And what was that for people who fell asleep during high school? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, right, uh, Eisenhower sends Nixon to the Soviet Union because he obviously, this is a great, uh, he's realizing this is a great way to like build Nixon's uh, reputation because no one likes him when he's at home. Um, <laughs> and so he goes to the Soviet Union for the American National Exhibition in Moscow. And they're, you know, walking around the exhibition. They they stop at a model of like a modern American kitchen. And it turns into this um, like very unscripted exchange about capitalism versus communism. And all, the press who are around are like, oh, yeah, Nixon totally mopped the floor with Khrushchev. Capitalism rocks. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Wasn't he drunk? 
Khrushchev Who, Nixon or, Nixon? or Khrushchev? <laughs> Both. Both? Like, was Nixon a, a drinker? Yes, he was. At that time? In Watergate, he was. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just what that's just the main reason he's a bad Quaker. <laughs> he was a, he was an early master of the drunk dial in politics. He, there were a lot of late night incoherent conversations apparently throughout his career. One last thing I want to hit about the 58 quote goodwill close quote tour that would become a theme. He I think he went to uh, the university, you know, the State University of Peru and tried to meet with the student union because he got along so well with young people he's very hip hello oh. fellow kids yeah that's steve Let's sit and again. rap i am not elvis <laughs> but i'll meet him one day oh man so and that brings us to 1960. So does he, it doesn't sound like he has a particular, I mean, he's obviously the front runner once he decides to, if in the GOP at least, I don't know if he's a front runner nationally. I got well, the sense he was. Yeah, by actually in, in 56, apparently, uh, even though Eisenhower was running unopposed, Nixon got uh, a not insignificant amount of write-in votes uh, in the Republican primary, which they still had for some reason. Priming the pump. So. Well, and again, I think it shows the divide growing in the Republican Party, too, for more conservative-ness. That's a very uh, educated term, um, listeners. Um, Right right? And uh, I'm a doctor. (laughs) Not that kind of doctor. I can't save your life, but I can tell you that life is a social construction. (laughs) Um, And so... You know, I, I think it's really interesting because I think we begin to see the divides that eventually get much larger and much more prominent in the Republican Party. And obviously, which never happened again, right? These more like middle of the road um, folks versus people who are lean, who want to take the party farther and farther to the right. We know a lot of the resentment he probably had towards Kennedy before the campaign even began. Oh, all the reasons. Yeah, and we've discussed in our John F. Kennedy episode, please go back and listen, that that first Chicago debate was formative because of Nixon was sick. Nixon had terrible makeup. Nixon Five o'clock shadow. Physically, yeah, Nixon had the wrong suit, which now that we've sort of reviewed what Nixon was doing as vice president, it is sort of odd because it's clear he kind of knew his way around the new medium. I mean, he, you could make an argument that that checker speech made him the first master of TV politics well before Kennedy. And he believed it also. Oh, yeah. And so that becomes formative. And we know super close, super bitter, super intense election. And what we don't know is that his vice presidential choice was Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. Again, a really, to me, um, this is the most obvious choice for Nixon because it gets him credentials as far as like East Coast Republicans and old money Republicans. So people he probably silently resented. Oh, yeah. Not so silently. 
he was not pleased about it, I'm sure. But he knows, again, if anything, Richard Nixon is a good politician. He's a Mm. pragmatist. Yes. And he loses by less than a less than a percent right of, of but a big but a by bigger point. margin in the electoral college by yes. 0.2 percent of the popular vote Ooh. which <laughs> leads nixon like here like here's a quote i've never seen from nixon <clears throat> on his assessment because again we're talking about kennedy's his like nixon's perception of what the kennedys were supposedly doing let's see if this rings any bells so <laughs> nixon writes We were faced in 1960 by an organization that had equal dedication to ours and unlimited money that was led by the most ruthless group of political operatives ever mobilized for a presidential campaign. Kennedy's organization approached campaign dirty tricks with a roguish relish and carried them off with an insouciance that captivated many politicians and overcame the critical faculties of many reporters. From this point on, I had the wisdom and wariness of someone who had been burned by the power of the Kennedys and their money and by the license they were given by the media. I vowed that I would never again enter an election at a disadvantage by being vulnerable to them or anyone on the level of political tactics. Gosh, he is so... (laughs) twisted i mean and- he wasn't wrong <laughs> That's you know, much. power and money i mean the paragraph got past an editor though so imagine the original draft also if we have Let's any chefs, every other word which is a curse word if we have any chefs listening to us please create and patent roguish relish <laughs> that like- i would actually, use that I, on my hot dog i actually i'm thinking imagine that as a tweet Roguish relish. It would be I mean, a thread for sure. If there's so one thing that Kennedy, Richard Nixon doesn't stand for, it's dirty politics and elections. Certainly not. I am not a rogue. I do not. I am not a relish. Not a relish. Roguish relish. And if you are just joining us, I would like to repeat the announcement that the returns are in and John Fitzgerald Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts, will be the next president of the United States. Turn that nonsense off, Ike. I'm Mr. President, sir. Sorry, Dick. I know it's tough to lose on a national stage. Really? Well, not personally. I'll be okay. But this country won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Don't say that, Dick. You'll still be crucial to the party. I suppose. And I, for one, can't wait to see what the Republican Party will be like going forward. Oh, we're not going forward. Exactly. And tomorrow is... What? We're not moving forward. It's the official position of the Republican Party that the 1950s was the best possible decade for the United States of America. Minus the Harry Truman years, of course. That's why we'll be doing everything in our power to keep the country firmly in the 50s. Is this some kind of joke, Dick? You can't stop the flow of time. There's no limit to what we can do, provided we maintain the race and gender politics of our exact present moment.
I came as soon as I heard the news. I I'm sorry about that, Dick, but we'll keep fighting. Barry Goldwater, just the man to talk some sense into this sore dick of a loser. I promise you, Richard, we'll make sure this country doesn't move one year forward. I appreciate that, Barry. You're a real pal. Wait, you're in on this madness? Of course. The years from November 1952 to November 1960 were the consummate years of the American century. No need for us to push any further. American century? We're only just into the second half of the century. Exactly. And everyone knows you put your best numbers at the end of Act One. See a musical, Ike. What does that even mean, keeping the country in the 50s? It's, it's simple, really. Uh, civil rights? Not up for discussion. The women's issue. Keep them at home, I say. Socialists, homosexuals, jazz men. We'll burn them all at the altar we set up atop Joe McCarthy's grave. You can't just... If we only hear from one side, damn it, we can't go backwards. Aha! Uh -huh. Here's somebody who will set you right. A member of the opposition. No Democrat will stand for the changing times quite like Strom Thurmond. I say, I say, I say, I say. I'm sorry, old Dickie Nixon. That's a real slam bang of a shame. I say a slam bang of a shame. But, but hey, <clears throat> at least we're keeping this country right back in the 50s. Even you? You see, Dwight, even these New Deal Democrats on the left know what's good for the country. That's why we're all united, West, East, South, to keep the United States grounded in the 50s. Yes, sirree, the 1850s, and it's going to stay that way this time. Uh, what? This is why you should always thoroughly vet your associates, Dick. Keep better tabs on people. Is there anything else we should know, Strom? Well, that's right, sonny boy. I'm also a sex pest. Good night, everybody. So that's Nixon has time to stew by losing. He writes a book called Six Crises. Right, yeah, so I was going to say. So what do you <laughs> know? What are the six crises, Chelsea? Do you know? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, you're, we're, we're quizzing the we're quizzing the historian <laughs> right now. The His case, I know. Yeah, it has a long, too. The checkers speech. Right, the fund. Mm -hmm. The Eisenhower's heart attack. We've talked about a lot of them, actually. Yeah, I don't remember. Already. The, the Venezuelan. Oh, yeah. Okay. The kitchen cat, the kitchen debate. How is that a crisis? That's an awesome moment for him. Those are, so it's <laughs> not mean, six crises. Cr it's his six crises. Right. Some crises then, are things you can win. <laughs> And then, then, then the campaign of 1960. Oh, okay. The campaign was a crisis. Well, it was lost. They lost. I would use. I, yeah, I would no, use disaster, yeah. but that's fine. The, these are personal crises. Five crises and a disaster. I think he's talking about these as national crises. These are his personal crises. And then uh, I he think that he was writing as a crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and notably, he wrote the book in response to John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage, <laughs> which, which Kennedy personally gave him a copy of. <laughs> I love that. He looks at Profiles in Courage and is like, gosh, I need to write a book that's just as good. I know, I'll make it all about me and my crises rather than the right. profiles of courage of other people. Right, and or just even I my courageous thing. 
self-pity as opposed to you know yes exactly courage. Yes. okay so that means so he decides i know what i can do while i wait to run for president again i'll run for governor of california People against like jerry brown's dad pat like brown this. yes indeed yeah. and he loses 51 to 47 wow i wonder i wonder where the other percent went and the best part is who does he blame certainly not himself california has only ever been good to nixon he blames the media you won't have dick nixon to kick around anymore which <laughs> which thankfully for us we still have nixon to kick around thank god how, like, how, does, how does a political career not get killed off with a crack like that spoiler alert audience we get to continue kicking Nixon around. <laughs> Kick that dick. Now, um, the, the interpretation, the history that I read gives gives Nixon credit, credit for his political renaissance, and now I'm going to sound like a stupid artist, renaissance, by collecting chits, by actively campaigning for Republican House candidates in 66, which I don't know if he was directly responsible, but that was kind of a that was kind of a massacre for the Democrats. Crafty motherfucker that he is, he built himself a pretty good, pretty good route to the '68 nomination. He he pretty much secured it for himself. Uh, did he attach himself to the Goldwater campaign at all? He introduces Goldwater at the convention, so hmm. he's he's not attached, but he makes a very prominent appearance at a very important event well that and that never happened again did it never a problem again <laughs> and, and then he he did uh campaign for yeah. goldwater despite the fact that he didn't think he was gonna win yeah. uh and so that uh also may have contributed to the fact that people were like that nixon he's at least for a loyal republican he's care he's carrying water for the party so he also, correct me if I'm doesn't he move to New York and start a law firm with John Mitchell? Ooh. Wow. Gotta use that law degree. Nixon. Gotta keep gotta keep checkers alive in bed. <laughs> gotta keep a pat and not mink coats. Well, he's got a growing family, so he has to bring in an income. Nixon was part of something called Nixon, Mudge, Rose, Guthrie, and Alexander which sounds like a 70s British prog band, <laughs> merged with Caldwell Trimble and Mitchell. Ah. That's where we got John Mitchell and the lovely Martha. So he became such a trusted confidant that he was essentially the guy that ran his campaign, Nixon's campaign in 68. That was never a problem again. Oh, brother. And um, so Mitchell, it looks like, is the guy that thought Urban crime was a problem. Black unrest was a problem. Loved no knock warrants. Like he's he's the first guy to talk about. Maybe he's one of the people that plants the whole law and order thing in Nixon's head in the run up to '68. Law and order for everyone else. Nixon doesn't have to abide by it though. '68 becomes really important. The beginning of the collapse of the New Deal Democrats, thanks to the Chicago Convention, mm -hmm. but. What people don't realize, and I always have to kind of review, is that Humphrey damn near pulled it out. They stopped bombing in uh, October in Vietnam. 
the George Wallace campaign kind of collapsed, even though he did win a few states. And generally, people didn't like Nixon. And that was one of those cases where if they had one or two more weeks, he may have caught him because it was a very close. This was another one. Popular vote, very close. Electoral vote, clear in part because of the southern, you know, the southern states. But does but, someone know the, the shitty deal he tried to put, he pulled with the Vietnamese government or the South Vietnamese government? The, somebody in Nixon's campaign reached out to, was it Le Docteau? Yeah. And Nixon basically said, we'll give you a better deal if you don't do it now. And they listened to him. Oh. And we see how well that worked. Um, it's and also and my Nixon job also as... campaigned on, he would, um, if not outright do something to repeal it, he would get Supreme Court justices that would re re review Brown versus Board of Education. Oh. Although ironically, I think the Supreme Court justices he nominated ended up being fairly liberal. That is, gave this Roe v. Wade. And gave us rest in peace. And gave us turn over the tapes. Yeah, but they yes. did gut uh, Brown. So. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. And he inexplicably he attracts an Eve. He settles on an even slimier bastard to join the campaign. And here we get to grow a penis. Uh, grow a penis, but no, we don't all get to grow a penis. That's just an ag that's just an anagram of Spiro Agnew's name. Uh, oh, oh, that was like Norquest. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think Johnny Carson discovered that one night. I don't know how. Supposedly he rearranged Spiro Agnew's name to grow a penis. I mean, that is how anagrams work. Exactly, <laughs> and it also works out to prison wages. Quick introduction to. Spiro Agnew, he was he was a crook from the beginning of his public career in uh, county government in Baltimore County government, uh, just a bag man selling off, mm -hmm. requesting a kickback. If people had spreadsheets or automated spreadsheets back in 1962, uh, one of the, some engineer in Maryland cre created a proto spreadsheet of how much more money. Agnew could have made collecting kickbacks instead of straight up bribes. Mm -hmm. Then he became governor. Then there was rioting in Baltimore. And then Spiro Agnew issued shoot to kill orders for the rioters and, and, and gathered every you know major black leader in the city and yelled at them and blamed them for, you know, what was essentially what we would call now, why can't you good ones control the bad ones? And thereby won Richard Nixon's heart. Exactly. State your names and jobs for the dictaphone, darlings. Uh, Francis Roy Scorsese, director. David William Goldwood, screenwriter. Uh, and um, Polly Silver Plate, set decorator. And I am Robert Evans Limey, the newly anointed president of Tinseltown Films. I invited you all to my office for a little creative inspiration. Uh, help yourselves. Anyway, this studio hasn't had a hit in years. 
In fact, we raffled off Lana Turner just to keep the doors open. I knew Hamlet the Musical was a bad idea. Still, Dick Van Dyke nailed it as Claudius. This joint spent the 60s bombing with classic escapist fare like costume dramas, westerns, and romances. In 1970, John Q. Moviegoer wants to see anti-heroes, a trend this studio has blown worse than a $5 hooker. I heard you shot down Bonnie and Clyde. And didn't jump on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And thought Five Easy Pieces was a stag film. So I'm hoping you brilliant young men, and uh, one chick so the women's livers don't burn their bras in the parking lot, can pitch some movies that reflect the bitter truth of American life with as much nudity as we can get away with. Go! A political thriller about a corrupt president. Two crusading journalists, maybe Bob Redford and Dustin Hoffman, uncover the conspiracy behind a botched Republican break-in at the Democratic Party headquarters. They learn that the commander-in-chief has tapes so incriminating he's forced to resign in disgrace. Working title, All the President's Men. You lost me at political. Not plausible, Polly. Politicians don't get caught. And we never let the president stupid enough to get mixed up in some third-rate burglary. <sighs> ah, but I'm developing a project about an aging mafia don who's honorable while the straight world is crooked. Working title, The Mumbling Sicilian. I'm, uh, I'm thinking Henry Fonda for the lead. Oh, good. I was afraid you'd want that has-been, Marlon Brando. Nice, Frankie. People think the mob runs the country anyway. Might as well make them feel good about it. How about a satire about the destructive power of television? Peter Finch is a news anchor who threatens to blow his brains out on live TV. So his bosses exploit him as a false prophet who makes people yell, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. But then his ratings drop and the execs have him killed. Working title, Network. And this is why women don't make movies. Satire. Ha! Do you know why the cliche satire is what closes on Saturday nights is bullshit? Because satire never even opens. Holly, people watch TV to be pacified. They don't want controversy or outrage. Besides, the age of TV demagogues ended with Joe McCarthy. It will never be a problem again. That's a good line. Anyway, I have a script about two lovable con men who assemble a crew full of colorful rogues to scam a fortune out of a murderous crime boss. I call it the infected insect bite. Perfect for Ryan O'Neill and Rod Steiger. Brilliant, Dave. Um, set it in the 30s for cheaper costumes and uh, make the crime boss Irish so we can cast a classy British actor. Oh, the foul-mouthed racist New York cop smashes cars while breaking up a global drug ring. The Portuguese connection. A charismatic child molester checks himself into an asylum full of ugly characters. One flew east, one flew west. You guys are on fire! Hmm, that must be why it's so warm in here. Uh, let me undo a couple of buttons on my blouse so I don't faint. Did, uh, oh, um, did you have any more movie ideas, Polly? Oh, just a silly screwball comedy. I don't want to waste such a powerful, important man's time with it. Oh, come on, show me more. I mean, tell me more. 
I'm thinking George C. Scott as an adorably corrupt governor of a nowhere state like Maryland. We'll give him a ridiculous name like Spigo Arnu. He's always calling for a crackdown on protesters and minorities and criminals. Meanwhile, he's shaking down government contractors for kickbacks. What a hoot! Didn't Bertolucci do something like that? And I'm not sure a crooked politician makes a good anti-hero. Films are still fantasies. A crook who does permanent damage to the country will scare people into embracing populist demagogues with phony, destructive law and order agendas. Yeah, listen to you chauvinist pigs. Give this broad a chance. You're knockers. You're knocking me out, Polly. Do you have a working tittle of the, the title? Nattering nabobs of negativism. Oh, alliteration. Awesome. Hooray for Hollywood. So Dick finally gets his gets the gig he's been clearly jonesing for. Dick Jones, anyway. Um, in 1969. And, and then the murders began, I feel like saying. but um, As they did, because crime skyrocketed during his, during his administration. He well, chose very weak men for his cabinet because he wasn't going to listen to them anyway. Yep. Where did he pick up Kissinger? Kissinger was his national security head. He was the national security counselor. And as he so charmingly called him, my Jew boy. Damn. Uh, charming fellow, Nixon. Yeah. Written some article that Dick loved. And it's like, okay, I gotta get I've gotta get this Jew boy on my team. And one of the first or maybe the only person to go to not only become secretary of state but remain national security advisor at the same time yeah uh kissinger was rockefeller's uh foreign policy advisor during the 68 primaries hmm. oh. and kissinger in fact called uh <laughs> called nixon the most dangerous men of the men running to have as president and he wasn't uh, wrong but then <laughs> that but was then a when, compliment <laughs> but then when nixon beat rockefeller uh Kissinger was like, eh, never mind, I'll go tie myself to him. Wow. Man. Shades of Lindsey Graham. Shades of Nixon, frankly. <laughs> yep. It's going for the the they're two peas in a horrible, horrible pod. Yeah, a very, very rotten pea pod that you should not pick off of the vine and eat. You should probably throw it away in the compost pile. Mm-hmm. Uh they prioritized foreign affairs based on what they considered to be the most important parts of the globe. Those would be Europe, Southeast Asia, and, and the Middle East. And the Middle East. And they decided that, you know, to give the Secretary of State something to do, Nixon said to Kissinger, and of course it was caught on tape. Let's leave the N-words to Bill Rogers. While at the same time, quietly not only reneging on the promise of South Vietnam that will give you a better deal, but trying to push them, but trying to win the war and trying to do it by quietly bombing surrounding countries. But let's not tell anybody that we're bombing surrounding countries, not just Cambodia, but Laos. <clears throat> the president is aware, I think it was the press secretary, is that Ziegler? But anyway, the press secretary says, 
Oh, the president is aware of what is going on in Cambodia. That is not to say there is anything going on in Cambodia. <laughs> oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's really good. We know that the protests, I'm not sure where the protests were in 69, because that was the year of Woodstock, but of course also Altamont. And 69 was the year of Days of Rage. Then the Days of Rage, okay. So they're still, go- I mean, the, the draft is still going on. Pe- the young people who clearly weren't voting for Nixon to begin with are getting, are amping up their anger. And then Cambodia is revealed. The protests go even further. And as a friend of mine, he described an incident where on May 4th, he was at the University of Wisconsin. He was walking across the quad. Another friend was walking in front of him. He found out about Kent State because the other friend looked at him and said, they shot some. One of the things, though, we, we one of the discussions we had, Chelsea, is Nixon killed the 60s. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's, it's, this is, um, as, even though I wrote my dissertation about the 70s through the 90s, like, this transition point from the 60s to the 70s is really what interests me as a historian. I, um, I don't want to say that Nixon himself alone killed the optimism of the 60s, but he certainly doesn't do any favors to that either. Well, my vote is on Manson. I would give it to Altamont, actually. I say Sherwood Schwartz. <laughs> Producer the of the Brady Bunch. <laughs> Killed it. Wow. Killed the 60s. Transitioned out of free love to a badly dressed version of traditional values. Free love to, oh no, we have six kids? Which also... But they did share a bed together, so there's that. So we're bombing Cambodia. Any questions, Henry? Uh, yes. Why are there so many pretty young girls wandering around the White House today? Uh, Trisha's hosting a tea for alumna of Finch, the woman's college she attended before deciding that finishing a degree would repel potential husbands. Uh, here are three of the gals now. Are you lost, my dears? Shall I escort you to the ladies' room? Up against the wall, motherfuckers! Hmm, nice 45s. You're not a trio of giggly debutantes. You're... Volunteers of America. (laughs) I am Grace Slick of the Jefferson Airplane. And I'm Angela Davis of the Communist Party USA. Finally, I can take this damn blonde wig off. I'm Andrea Dworkin of Take Back the Night. Angela, you try finding a tennis bracelet that goes with overalls. Is uh, this a protest for legalized abortion? I'm on your side if it brings the price down. I've been Enough, for- Henry! How did you subversives get in here? Your daughter invited me. I went to Finch. I brought friends. The Secret Service is too busy to help you. Thanks to Abby, all Trisha's guests are having a wild time. Who is this Abby? Can I meet her? Shut up, Henry! 
What, but you're telling me the dangerous left-wing agitator Abby Hoffman is here in the White House? And he dosed the tab with tabs of purple Owsley. Uh, <laughs> only self-loathing women drink diet soda. Listen, Andrea, women, regardless of race or class. Look, whatever you broads want, forget it. I won't surrender to radicals, so you might as well kill us now. Oh, look, can I make a final request? Oh, we can't be together, kissy face. Here are demands first, trickster. Then decide if you want to get Kennedy'd. Those predatory creeps had it coming. First, admit your truth is shown to be lies. Current law treats marijuana like it's as dangerous as heroin, speed, or acid. I'm on all three right now, and there's no comparison. No chance. Marijuana use leads to crimes like burglary, bribery, and liberalism. You with the afro, what do you want? Pardon Bobby Seal. Prosecute the police officers who murdered Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. Defund the military and spend the money as reparations for slavery. Am I clear? Crystal. Isn't her name Angela? But no dice. The silent majority elected me to get you people under control. I won't betray my supporters. And you with the mustache, what's your beef? I demand that you ban pornography. You said you wanted to end violence against women, Andrea. I do. Pornography is the theory, rape is the practice. But I said yes. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. Um, I disagree with the Johnson Commission's findings that pornography is harmless. Well, now you're talking some sense, Diggy Boy. We're trying to get him to follow the 14th Amendment, and you're telling him to ignore the first? As free speech is to pornography, freedom is to anarchy. Right on, big dick. Don't have a change, lady. He likes you that way. Yes, I've always admired women who allow their body heart to grow naturally. They are so warm and fuzzy. And oh, they taunt this, pig. <gasps> Do I have to pay for that? If only. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm taking you two bitches to a consciousness-raising seminar. Do I have to stay conscious for it? <laughs> and that, Henry, is why the radicals will lose. They're so damn committed to equality that they have to let everyone have a say, and they wind up bickering. Real Americans know the only way to preserve freedom is through blind obedience, so we stay united, give or take the occasional merger. Any questions? You're not really going to ban pornography, are you? No, I am not going to bother. I don't want my legacy to be sullied by association with such filth. The idea of people hearing the word Nixon and thinking of a dirty movie is like a bone deep in my throat. Introduce yourself, James. Good evening. Uh... I am your uh, historian consultant, James McRae, employee of the Charlotte Public Schools and uh, teaching social studies and happy to be here to talk President Nixon. What was the economy like when Nixon came in? We know culturally it was, Wah! but what about economically? We've talked about the post-war economy a little bit, but remember the, the picture after 1945 up until the like real late 1960s, 
is one where the United States is by far the most important economy in the Western world. And remember, with with you know communism, basically that part of the world doesn't trade with the Western part of the world. You know, it's pretty much there's isolated economic systems. So Soviet Union, we don't really trade with them. You know, they gave us a little oil, we gave them a little wheat, whatever. It wasn't a big deal. <laughs> there's no trade really going on with China. And so really when we're talking about the economies that the United States is trading with, we're talking about the Americas, Western Europe, and Japan. Um, and so those economies, Japan is a smoldering ruin in 1945. Western Europe is a smoldering ruin. There are no other industrial economies in America's economic sphere. And so <laughs> it is a great time to be an American manufacturer. It's a great time to be an American producer of consumer goods because you have not only an American audience with you know, fat wallets full of cash ready to buy stuff, but then you have these European economies that are like, hey, we like stuff too, but our oil factories are gone. So can we get some of that American uh, produce? And so- And then you also have a youth culture that also has a, a lot of money and new <coughs> things to spend it on, like uh, TVs and that weird rock and roll music and whatnot. Right, and I'm sure Chelsea, as we've discussed before, is really the expert in terms of how uh, advertising and media really shaped the consumer market in, in the 50s and 60s to, to divide the market through what we call monopoli monopolistic competition, which is different than monopoly, but it's like where a product becomes very diversified to appeal to different niches, different age groups, different social groups, different classes. How I explain it to my students is that, yes, a Toyota Corolla and a Bugatti are both automobiles, but they're not sold to the same market. Um, you mean as opposed to like Jello for the hippies, Jello for your grandma? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so you know, they they find that you know they divide the marketplace and they say this is the product for you. You need this product to be you. And then of course, if you believe that, then you'll pay a higher price than you normally would in a perfectly competitive market. So it's a great time in the fifties and sixties to be an American producer. You've got a captive audience. Um, in, in terms of the American market and the foreign market, you don't have any foreign competition because it's gone. Um, and it's also, frankly, a great time to be an American worker because American workers are saying, look, we're the only workers you got, right? You know, immigration is still pretty low in this period. Um, again, foreign competition doesn't really exist. So American workers, especially American skilled workers, can say, look, you're not going to find any other skilled workers. You got to pay me or me and my union uh, a pretty high wage here. Uh, and so it, it's it's a pretty good um, economic portrait for American workers in this period as well, or at least most American workers. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say is one of the things that makes the Nixon years not great for American workers, though, is inflation is at its highest point since the Korean War, right? Right. So that's which where continues I'm on into yeah. the Ford administration, yeah. which we'll get to in a second here. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, and, you know, definitely inflation was never a problem again. Where's Patrick? There he is. <laughs> it was never a problem again um, to take his line away from him. <laughs> and... I think he's sleeping. Continue. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, and so Nixon, right, is, is forced to try to deal with inflation and being Nixon he chooses to deal with inflation in ways that he's like, it's not going to, it, it might solve the problem for now, but it's going to eventually, like the after effects of his policies 
only make inflation worse for Ford, but he doesn't care because he's Nixon, right? <laughs> So, so the war is going swimmingly. The negotiations are slogging. Uh, the youngins hate him. The culture kind of despises him. I mean, the tricky, the Dick Nixon jokes are flying, whether it's Johnny Carson or Laughing. I mean, um, his name's Dick Nixon. Come on. I mean, how I can mean, we not make the jokes, even if you liked him? Honestly, it's and just, let me tell y'all, Dick Luger. Do you like? He didn't need to go by his actual name. Gerald Ford didn't. Come on. <laughs> so you've got socialist and rust everywhere. Sandy and I grew up in Cleveland. The freaking Cuyahoga River caught fire Wait, Joe, during you're from... Nixon's first term. Wait, you're Wait. from Ohio? Ew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know that? Just and, yet, and yet, and yet, 1972 rolls around and he has the most dominant re-election that you could possibly have okay two factors i'm sorry and it was uh, this is a serious and it never happened again moment <laughs> the people you know the people were talking about the carsons the comedians and the young people they were in a bit of a bubble they might have been a little bit detached from the main culture as pauline kale famously said how did this happen? No one I know voted for Nixon. Mm -hmm. eh, that was uh, sort of urban legend-ish. She might have she might have been speaking ironically, but it still became. Yeah, she was been misquoted. I well, mean, no, because remember if what I recall, I... she she did say that, but that but she went on to say, so that's an obvious, so that's an example of how I live in a bubble. Yes. Well, so clearly, I don't know enough people if no one I know voted for Nixon. Well, let's also for, not forget in 1970 and 71, CBS had all of those rural comedies, Andy Griffith, Green Acres, Petticoat yep. Junction, cancel them all while they're still at the top of the ratings. And what do they replace it with? All in the Family and all of the spinoffs and Archie Bunker, who oh. we know damn well voted for Nixon. Well, they <laughs> all wanted the urban money that uh, advertisers were chasing, and you don't have a lot of ca spare cash in rural uh, residences. But people thought they were crazy. Turns parent. out they were crazy like foxes. Taking a trip to anyway. the book club. <laughs> all in the Family club. by Robert Self. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Chelsea does that book. For the book club. So what? Chelsea does that book uh, discuss how Archie Bunker was the real hero of the show, not Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we know this? Well, too that he uh, was the pro, no, he was the quintessential uh, Nixon voter as far as Nixon was concerned. Absolutely, mm -hmm. I mean, we we all know that the real hero of that show is Edith. It was Edith. Yes. <laughs> the Democrats put in George McGovern on a staunchly anti-Vietnam platform. But of course, he gets into a little bit of a problem because of his vice presidential candidate, or at least his first vice presidential candidate. Eagleton. Tom Eagleton, who had to drop out because... Therapy. He was discovered he had, including shock therapy, if I'm not mistaken. 
And how did the people know that? Who told? How do you was it? Who said and discovered that I'm there liking. was something going on with Thomas Eagleton? Why oh, have we become missing. a Socratic Method podcast, Joe? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, was, um... Well, by then, Nixon had his own dirty, I mean, again, people knew he was the king of the dirty tricks. And after all, and the dirty dick, even though he didn't really need it, because we all know, first of all, he was spying, he he knew uh, what was going on with Daniel Ellsberg, like found out about his psychiatry when the Pentagon Papers came out. And what was that quote that we just said, I will never be caught again. So what does he do in the in the summer of 1972? He breaks into the uh, Democrats' uh, Congress uh, office, national headquarters, going yeah. on at the <laughs> Watergate Hotel, thereby a... giving us whatever scandal gate forever, <laughs> forever. And now, from the Watergate Hotel in sunny Washington D.C., it's Rowan and Martin's break-in. You know, Dick. Yes, Dan? The committee to re-elect the president has been up to something recently. The committee to re-elect the president? That's right. Creep. <laughs> they may have been a little on the nose with that one. And uh, which president is it that they are uh, creeping for, Dan? Well, Nixon. Tricky Dick, Dick. Uh, the guy's so nice they named him twice. <laughs> you know the Watergate Hotel? Oh, I always stay at the Howard Johnson's. <laughs> you always stay at the Howard Johnson's? You know, so do I. Right. Some men associated with the committee were caught breaking into the offices of the Democratic National Committee and bugging the phone. You know, I've heard of hotels with bed bugs, but phone bugs. <laughs> I wonder what that sounds like. Uh, a one ringy dingy, a two ringy dingy. Oh, a gracious, good afternoon. Is this the party to who I'm speaking? Ah, uh, yes. This is Ernestine Tomlin from the Committee to Re-Elect the President. I, I mean the White House. I, I mean the phone company. <laughs> That's right. I'm just a duly appointed representative of Ma Bell. I'm just giving you a call to make sure all of your phone equipment is working correctly. Yes, your headset and your receiver and the recording device and your ringer. <laughs> That's right. I said the ringer. Well, good. Now, don't go having any incriminating conversations. <laughs> We're always listening. <laughs> Just kidding. A little phone company humor. <laughs> he believes that, and I'm G. Gordon Liddy. Ha! <laughs> mm, very interesting. And now let's take a look at the mod, 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 mod world of wiretapping, as our very own Goldie explains to us the Watergate break-in. Goldie? So, Jay Garden Liddy and John Ehrlichman came up with a plan to bug the Democrats, and John Mitchell didn't think the plan, he helped the plan would work according to plan, so they went ahead and did the plan to bug the Democrats, and they broke in and bugged the phones and, and took pictures and set up some equipment, because Liddy was in charge, unless you ask him, he was duped by the CIA, because John Mitchell's wife's bodyguard, that's Martha Mitchell, well, the wife, not the bodyguard, <laughs> her bodyguard set up the wiretaps, only he didn't set them up, because he was across the street on 
lookout, only he wasn't on lookout because he was watching Attack of the Puppet People on TV. And they found the tape on the latches and took the tape off the latches. And they found the tape on the latches again because they retaped the latches when the tape was removed and Forrest Gump called and they got arrested. <laughs> Sounds like they ran a tight ship, Goldie. You bet your sweet bibby. <laughs> and Dixon didn't know anything except Nixon knew everything and Haldeman too. And then they kidnapped John Mitchell's wife. That's Martha Mitchell. And Nixon says he's not a cook and fired everybody. And his tapes got out, but not the tapes they taped on the latches. Only the they couldn't find part of the tape he taped. And, and the Washington Post used the Barno movie to report on it out. And all of Nixon's plumbers got involved, and that was a bit of a drip. <laughs> but I don't think those guys know anything about pipes, or else I think Nixon would have to deal with a pretty big sock it to me. Sock it to me? Better watch out for those leaks, Dick. A what? <laughs> Not you, Dick. Nixon, Dick. We're calling Nixon on Dick. What do you do? Just don't ask Raquel Welch. Let's not ask anyone. Say goodnight, Dick. Goodnight, Dick. Say goodnight, Dick. Goodnight, Dick. I just think it's like so ironic that with such a landslide, he didn't need to go through such extremes. He could have avoided this whole But he was a paranoid motherfucker. So, yeah, you do everything. Yep. So what was it that, how did he build up his leads with so much domestic turmoil, with crime, with inflation? Watergate was just breaking as the election was happening in the fall of 72. Most people thought it was, as they said, a third-rate burglary. It was only Woodward and Bernstein that were being told, no, no, there's something much deeper here. Keep digging. Uh, There were stories. I looked up for a month, you know, a year before the Saturday Night Massacre, what the story, you know, what the news stories were, and that was when on page uh, seven, I believe, of the Chicago Tribune, Watergate burglar is a member of GOP. It's like how fucking slow were? Why were people putting it together so slowly? Could it be it was so incredulous? The brazenness. Ooh. Yeah. The brazenness, also the ineptitude. The idea. I think there was also maybe those who weren't observing or just had a passing glance that politics was still a place of gentlemen and you just never did these kind of things. Yeah, or it's for, just for people asking, the, how can they, no one is, they're not that stupid, are they? For all the cynicism that was built up around the Vietnam War, somehow respect for the presidency was still there on a cultural level if not a political level maybe a political level maybe part of it was i mean the question i have and and i was just a kid so i don't remember this much although i was the only kid that voted for mcgovern in my second grade class and i got my ass kicked for it and (laughs) i damn it i was right which is why i don't talk to those a-holes um it wasn't the ass kicking it was the fact that you were right this, this anecdote explains a lot joe <laughs> Does, doesn't it um yeah this this is your origin story joe <laughs> but my question becomes was i guess how feared was nixon at this point did people know he did people think he had so much dirt that he could destroy careers 
Well, he did have an enemies list. And he, uh, my understanding, and Chelsea, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he was not above sicking the IRS on people. Well, that's also what Mitchell was doing as attorney general, we know. Or at least supposedly Reagan was willing to do that also. In his, in the taped conversations, he was discussing with his even worse vice president, Spiro Agnew, people that they had to destroy in order to save, in order to save, you know, Agnew's bacon, such as it were, or whatever form. It wasn't, uh, what was the, the, the uh, journalist, something Anderson? Jack Anderson. Jack Anderson. Mm-hmm. That uh, what definitely was on Nixon's enemy list to the point where Nixon was trying to take active, decisive action against him. Which and it's one of my favorite Hunter S. Thompson quotes. He said one of his regrets was not getting on Nixon's enemies list, not even the second one. Oh, he was so pissed. Norman Lear <laughs> well, is so made happy it. he's on the list. Like I was the one that had the Dick Nixon doll, and my dog would attack it by the crotch every time I mentioned Nixon's name. How am I not on his list? Man, I mean, I know again if remembering all the president's men within the party. There was clearly because you know was it Magruder that talked about the rat fuckers? Probably, and because he and I think that's where I got the no. They knew about Eagleton. They dropped that rumor, so they they went. You know that's they kind of took credit for destroying McGovern's campaign. Um, whether that's true or not, so. You know, this this act of self, I mean, was it an act of self-destruction or did he just get caught? Who? Nixon. Oh, he just got caught. He okay. just got caught. Okay. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. was spiraling. Well. He was, yeah, absolutely. Watergate is a, is a just a desperate flail. Which again, like Sandy said, he he won going away. What was, yeah. why did he have to, why did he feel it? Well, we know. So many theories. Yeah, there are plenty of theories. Um, but in so, hindsight, you ha- you can ask that question. While he's going through it, he didn't know he was going to win in a landslide. Yeah, I think I think it's a couple of things, right? I think it's a um, right. Nixon had already done so much shady garbage and hadn't gotten caught that he. I feel like he had an inflated sense of um, his own super villainy. <laughs> Not even super villainy, like he he's um that's just his playbook at that point yeah he's just impenetrable like there's nothing that can bring him down he's the goddamn president right um when the president does it it's not illegal right and he says after the fact and so i think i think it's this inflated sense of his own um uh safety Right. Um, but I think As the kids also, say he was getting high on his own supply. I don't think the kids say that. But <laughs> they might have in 1970. Well, my, when I was kids. <laughs> Hello, fellow kids. Um, <laughs> and but I think it's also this sense of he and his paranoia need to feel like he's in control of all the information that is available to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and as someone who, so we recently at work had to take a, um, a skills and strengths assessment. And I was like, what is this capitalist tool that you're making us take? And they were like, why did we hire a doctor? This was dumb. 
Um, but we had to, uh, my number one strength um, was that I am, essentially, they put it kinder than this, but essentially I am a knowledge hoarder. Um, and I, I feel like Nixon is also a knowledge hoarder. Okay. We are kindred knowledge hoarders. You heard it first. Chelsea is Richard Nixon. <laughs> knowledge Some people hoard leave. money. Chelsea ho- hoards info. <laughs> One theory of the Nixon recording system was that the president was all thumbs when it came to using the different recording devices. So a voice activated system had to be installed. One White House official was said to have noted For want of a toggle switch, the presidency was lost. We here at DB Comedy can't help but imagine what that search for Nixon's tape recording system might have sounded like. Hello, welcome to Radio Shack. How can... Oh, Mr. President, what what brings you... Hello, young man. I am in need of a high-quality recording device, and I have been told that this establishment has the latest technology available. Oh, yes, sir. Radio Shack is the most cutting-edge electronics you can find. You've come to the right place. What exactly are you looking for? I need something simple, secure, and stealthy. Excuse me? Never mind. Listen, son. You're not one of those radical college peacenik types who smoke dope and do the protesting, are you? Oh, no, sir. I, I was in the AV club in school. I spent my time running projectors and film strips. I, I didn't get invited to the rallies. That, that's how I got this job. Well, good for you, son. This country needs more upstanding, hardworking young people like you. I'll bet you're one of the silent majority. Well, I don't know about majority. Anyway, about your tape recorders. This here is the latest Magnavox 8-track player. This beauty will never go out of style. Although, my boss is making us push the Radio Shack Realistic brand. I'm very sorry, sir. I I think that was my co-workers. I usually play, um... Perry Como or Nancy Sinatra. Well, what else do you have? Well, here's a more old school device, but definitely sturdy, a reel-to-reel. If you want to record important things, this will do the trick. Huh? You get it? The, The trick? I don't get you, son. Never mind. Here, try this out. Uh, what, where, where is the record button? Right here, sir. Just... Loop those tapes under these reels. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trapped! I'm trapped! It's trying to kill me! Oh, oh. See? Those Jewish film moguls, they're all out to get me! I think this is Japanese. They're all damn foreigners. Okay, maybe we can go a little simpler. This little cassette player is compact, it can fit under your desk, and it's easy to operate. Just push the play and record buttons at the same time. Like this? Hello? Hello? Um, no, they have to be pressed together at the same time. Hello? Hello? No, that that's the play. This is recording. Hello? 
No, no, at the same. Hello. No, no you just erased the whole Hello. thing. Hello. Yes, both buttons. What do you have that is not trying to assassinate me? We have this voice activated machine that can be set up so it never turns off. No buttons. No. No tapes. None that you'll ever have to bother with. But be careful. It will record everything you say. That will never be a problem. You know, if a president records something, that means the country will believe him. Right? Absolutely, sir. Now, can I interest you in our Battery of the Month Club? It's time now. James, if you had to finish, if, if you had to say one thing about Richard Nixon and his presidency, or perhaps in his entire political career. Just one thing. Well, just one thing that you would tell your students. What it, What would it be? Maybe top three. Okay, so five. I guess, let me, this is, if I had to, if I had to write the epitaph on Nixon's gravestone. There we go. Uh, the word I would include is traitor. Oh, you no. just can't throw that out there without elaborating. Because I think that what he did to sabotage peace talks in the 68 election was treason. He Ooh. literally undermined the position of U.S. negotiators who were trying to end the war and save American lives and Vietnamese lives, for that matter. Like, let's not forget those. And eventually but, Cambodian lives. Yeah. Are you saying a major U.S. political candidate was, like, colluding with a foreign power to manipulate the results of a U.S. election? Patrick, would that be a problem again? I don't think it would, Tommy. <laughs> no? All right. We'll watch there is not two or three times more. The, the Paris Accords, I think, were a worse deal than they would have gotten in 68 anyways. Not that anyone in 73 had any, you know, thought that the North Vietnamese were going to honor those agreements. Everybody knew that that was the end of South Vietnam, I think. Um, so, so, yeah. The, so the actual end didn't come until after Nixon had left. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so basically there was five years of war that didn't need to happen, had no point, and was Nixon actively undermining U.S. foreign policy for his own political machinations? I, like, if, if they're aiding and abetting the enemies of the United States... I, that is the definition of treason. I would guess that Haldeman and Ehrlichman probably were in on that one since they did help him during his campaign and that's how they secured positions in his administration. Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess I guess my question is whether, um, what's his face? Um, is he Kiss? Kissinger, whether Kissinger was in on it. Right, because like yeah, Kissinger think still has like some like actual like credibility today for unknown reasons. Because he's still alive. He, I mean, he's still alive, and and people sometimes talk about him as a serious advisor in foreign policy. But if he helped, you know, collude in that '68 thing, then I, I think that he should be shot into the sun. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Hell won't have him. Among all the other reasons. Uh, you know, yeah, among all the other reasons that Kissinger should be shot into the sun. But honestly, given how often this happens, it's. Uh, shocking more presidents don't try to end their wars before their their term is over it's funny how it only seems to be republicans that interfere with those sorts of things in order to influence the american election though don't hear anything about i've never heard democrats do that maybe because this is the we are entering the era of democratic bumblefucks but uh, <laughs> especially yeah, on the Joe, presidential that because, level that's because republicans are evil democrats are just incompetent 
That could yeah. be. I, I have to co-sign on that. So what we're kind of getting a sense of as by the time Nixon does chopper off the west way off, off the law, uh, was it the east lawn, the west lawn? When, whenever he, out. when he hightails it out is that you have a Republican Party that's sort of beaten to a pulp because of the scandal. You have a Democratic Party still reeling from 68 and 72. Uh, just th there's 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 it's just flipping people are just tired people are just exhausted and that's when chelsea's favorite president will come into play john adams oh Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> and please come back when we'll talk about that one thing we haven't talked about yet because it's the one thing that we will certainly talk about with gerald ford next I heard Nixon was reading the funny papers the other day. Oh yeah? What's his favorite? The Washington Post. What did you think of the checkers speech? I'm more of a chess fan myself. H.R. Haldeman, G. Gordon Liddy, E. Howard Hunt. Awful lot of initials in Washington, huh? Saves time writing warrants. What do you get when you cross a wiretapping scandal in the Washington Post? President Gerald Ford! You hear the president has an enemies list. It's called the phone book. So what did you think of the checker speech? Impressive. My dog can't even talk. President Nixon came up with a novel new way to lower taxes. He quit his job so he doesn't have to pay him anymore. I told you about my neighbors, the Knicks. Yeah, what about him? Well, the dad, Michael, recently had to break up a peewee soccer game because they were using his little boy as the ball. Oh my, that's terrible. I know. At least they won't have Mick Nick's son to kick around anymore. The producers of Deep Throat are threatening to sue the Washington Post for defamation of character. The pornographers don't want to be associated with anything as dirty as politics. What do you think of Nixon's checker speech? I think he'd look better in pinstripes, or maybe polka dots. My hippie son ran off to Canada the other day instead of fixing the window. All I said was, do you feel a draft? This whole show, you guys have been slandering Nixon, and I won't stand for it anymore. I'd like to see you try to sing for Natalie Wood and Audrey Hepburn. Marnie Nixon doesn't get the credit she deserves. Is that another chicken joke? DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Pocola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, 
visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.